Well, we are continuing with our study through the book of Acts. Uh, today we are looking at Acts chapter 26. In this chapter, Paul is speaking in defense of himself and of the Christian faith uh, before King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. This is Paul's fifth and final defense since this whole ordeal began in Jerusalem. So let's talk a little bit about what led to this final defense of his faith and of himself. Paul's first events took, took place in Jerusalem. This was in Acts 22. He was in Jerusalem uh, after uh, coming, uh, returning from his third missionary journey. While there, he participated in a purification rite in the temple. Some Jews from Asia who were in Jerusalem uh, for the Feast of Pentecost, they recognized Paul and started a riot to kill him. They accused him of speaking against the Jewish people, of speaking against the law of Moses, and of speaking against the temple. Well, the Roman commander rescued Paul and then allowed Paul to speak to the mob. Paul spoke of the fact that as a Jewish man, he had put his faith in Jesus as the Christ. He also spoke of how Christ appeared to him personally later in the temple in Jerusalem and told him to go to the Gentiles with the Jewish mob there got really mad and said that this man ought not to live because of that. Well, Paul's second defense took place the next day in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, that's in Acts 23. The acting high priest had Paul struck on the mouth because he said that he had lived his life with a clear conscience before God. And then when Paul brought up the issue of the resurrection, there was a division within the council which became violent and once again, the Roman commander had to rescue Paul. Paul's third defense took place before Felix, who was the governor of Judea in Caesarea. This was, took place in Acts 24. The Roman commander had to move Paul to Caesarea from Jerusalem because of a conspiracy between 40 Jewish men and the Sanhedrin. They were making plans to kill Paul. Well, in this defense before Felix, the Jewish leaders brought their accusations before Paul through an attorney, and they, again, he was accused of causing dissension among the Jews, of desecrating the temple, and also being a leader of the sect of the Nazarene. Well, Paul made it clear that he was not the one who was causing riots. He made it clear he was in the temple to worship the Lord, not to desecrate it, but he fully embraced the way. That Jesus the Nazarene. He said it was through his faith in Christ that he served the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and that was written in the prophets. Well, at the end of this hearing, it was clear that Felix did not believe that Paul had done anything wrong, but he kept Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. Well, after two years, Felix was replaced by a man named Festus, it was before Festus in Acts 25 that Paul made his fourth defense. Once again, the Jews accused him. Once again, Paul said that he had committed no sin either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against any, the law of Caesar. So as a favor to the Jews, Festus asked if he would agree to return to Jerusalem to stand trial there. Paul said he had done nothing wrong, and which Festus was well aware of. So he would not go to Jerusalem, but instead he appealed to Caesar. Festus agreed to send Paul to Caesar, but there was one big problem. Festus did not have any charges against Paul that he could send 
when he appeared before Caesar. That was a pretty big problem. In the meantime, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice came to Caesarea to pay respects to Festus as he was newly appointed to the, to the office. And while there, Festus asked if Agrippa would help him think through what Paul should be charged with. Agrippa agreed to do this, so in Acts 26, we see Paul's fifth and final defense in regard to the accusations that had been made against him. Now, there's two main things that I w- want to consider from this chapter. First, we look at Paul's testimony about Jesus Christ, and then second, we look at the responses that were made to Paul to what Paul had to say. So our first main point is this. Paul testified before kings, before kings of, this, uh, of his life, as a faithful Jew and his conversion to faith in Jesus as the promised Christ. We were told in Acts chapter 9, which which is the, the account of Paul's conversion, that when he was converted, Jesus made it known to him that he would speak the name of Christ before Gentiles, before kings, and before the sons of Israel. Well, it's in these recent chapters in Acts that we see Paul especially bearing witness before kings. His testimony here in Acts 26 is the biggest example of that. As we noted, Paul is specifically addressing Herod Agrippa II. But Festus is also part of this gathering. And we are told back in Acts 25 verse 23 that there are also military commanders there and prominent men of the city were also present. As we noted last week, Paul was being unjustly held in prison. The charges brought by the Jewish leaders were only related to the fact that Paul and they disagreed about who Jesus Christ was. The Roman governors had already admitted that Paul had done nothing wrong as far as Roman law was concerned. And the only reason he was even being held captive was as a favor to the Jews. So the reason Paul is in the position that he is in is because of the Jews' hatred of him and the Roman governor's desire to appease them. But, Paul, but God used these ungodly motives on the, on, the, on the part of the Jews and on the part of the Roman authorities to give Paul some amazing opportunities to speak directly to kings and others in authority, just like God said he would. Let's begin now to work our way through this chapter. Look verses first at verses 1, 2, and 3. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So as Paul begins his defense before Herod Agrippa, he says that he's glad that Agrippa is the one that he is addressing. This is the son of Herod Agrippa, the first who was struck down by the Lord for allowing himself to be worshipped as a god. We read that story back in Acts chapter 12. This is his son. Agrippa governed in areas of Palestine, which included Jerusalem and included the temple. He was actually a proselyte to Judaism. Therefore, he was familiar with Jewish laws, Jewish customs, Jewish ways. And of the Roman magistrates, Agrippa is the one who would most understand the issues here. So Paul expresses his gratitude that Agrippa has been willing then to hear him out. 
Well, then Paul begins his, de- his defense. Look in verses 4 to 7. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a, as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial by, for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I have been accused by the Jews. So as Paul accounts for the early years of his life, he makes this point on your point A on your outline. The Lord graciously chose the Jewish people as those to whom he revealed amazing promises of a Messiah who would come as the hope of salvation, as the hope for salvation. So Paul begins by emphasizing his Jewish upbringing, his training that took place in Jerusalem. He took his Jewish faith very seriously and lived conscientiously as a Pharisee. As a committed Jewish man, Paul believed the Old Testament. He believed these, those old, uh, the Hebrew scriptures. He describes a major part of that teaching in verse 6 as the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. There was a promise made to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob. And here's what it said. The Lord made a covenant promise that said this, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This was the promise of a Messiah. It was a promise that the Messiah would be Jewish. It was a promise that gave hope to the Jewish people. It was a promise that gave hope to all the nations of the earth. Paul spoke of that promise on a regular basis in his sermon in the Jewish synagogue of Pisidian Antioch. This is back in Acts 13. There's a number of prophecies he referred to in that sermon. He spoke of how God promised that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. He spoke of David's words in Psalm 2, which say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Paul said this referred to the fact that the Messiah would be raised from the dead, the Son of God. David's words in Psalm 16, he also refers to reemphasize his truth and says, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So an emphasis there on the resurrection being prophesied. Well, this Messiah was the hope of the promise that God made to the fathers, and all the Jews shared that hope. They believed the Lord one day fulfilled that promise made to their fathers, their forefathers. Paul tells Agrippa, that's what I'm on trial for. The problem was that he believed these promises more literally than most of his Jewish brothers and sisters. So as Paul speaks of the hope of his promise, he then kind of just seems to blurt this out in verse 8. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Well, the Jews who were of the Sadducee party or sect did not believe there was such a thing as a resurrection. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. And maybe Agrippa identified more with the Sadducees than the Pharisees. We don't know. But in this defense... There were really probably very few Jews in attendance outside of uh, maybe Herod and his wife. The majority of them would surely have been Gentiles. And Gentiles would, of course, be even more skeptical of the fact of someone rising from the dead. And Paul surely had encountered that in his various missionary journeys. But the fact that by definition, the one true God is sovereign, 
and all-powerful, would make it seem that to raise someone from the dead would not be that difficult for him. In creation, for example, he created the world out of nothing. That included creating man in his image, breathing life into him. So if he could do this, of course he could raise someone from the dead. And the idea here is belief in the resurrection was important because we see in our next point on your outline that the fact that Jesus rose from the dead after being crucified confirmed him as the promised Messiah. So as Paul proclaimed in Pisidian Antioch, there were numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah would rise from the dead. We also know that Jesus himself promised multiple times that he would not only be crucified, but that he would also rise from the dead. Let me just give you one example of that. It's in Luke chapter 18. There are several places we could go for this, but Luke 18, 31 to 34. Then Jesus took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said until they actually happened. Then they understood and believed. But Jesus was emphasizing there really the hope of the promise and the, uh, emphasizing the fact that he was the Messiah and that, the fight, and that, and that, uh, that his death as the suffering servant and his resurrection would confirm that he was the Messiah. That's why Paul speaks passionately about the importance of the resurrection in the early part of his defense. He understands how vital it is as a confirmation of that hope of the promise. But, of course, like many of his contemporaries, Paul did not believe it either at first. So look at what he says in verses 9 to 11. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. So from these verses, we see next that as a committed yet unbelieving Jew... Paul actively persecuted those who believed in Jesus Christ with great rage, with great rage. This is the third time, really, that Luke has recorded for us Paul's testimony in the book of Acts, so obviously it's something very significant. We get more detail here about Paul's persecution of the Christians than we, than we do in the other accounts. Paul tells us that because he did not believe that because he did not believe Jesus was the hope of the promise, he did many things that were hostile to those who did believe. More specifically, Paul says he was hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he was hostile to the doctrines, to the teachings of Jesus. He was hostile to the claims of Jesus as the Messiah. He was hostile to the idea of honoring Jesus as the Son of God. 
And the way Paul showed this hostility toward the name of Jesus was by going after those who believed in him. It says he locked many of them up in prison. Note, by the way, he calls them saints here. He did not think of them as saints when he was locking them up in prisons. But as he considers his behavior now, and he knows, he knows now they truly were saints, holy ones, people set apart by God for God. But we also see that he was fully in favor when Jewish authorities gave them the death penalty. So he, he, he gave complete approval, just like he did when they stoned Stephen. We also see in verse 11 that he severely punished them. This may very well be speaking of scourging with the whip. He was trying his best to get them to blaspheme, he says. He wanted them to deny their faith in Jesus as the Christ. He describes himself as being furiously enraged at them. He was consumed with anger. That's why his actions toward those believers were so hostile and violent. He asked that he would even go to cities outside of Jerusalem to persecute Christians. So as Paul testified, he was doing this out of his religious zeal. He was confident that he was doing the right thing, but in reality what he was doing was evil. Matthew Henry made this observation here. He says it is possible for those to be confident they are in the right who yet are evidently in the wrong. And for those to think they are doing their duty who are willfully persisting in the greatest sin. Sin is deceptive. That's one of the, I mean, there's all kinds of bad, bad things about sin. One of the really bad things about sin is it deceives. Sin often deceives us by making us think we are doing the right thing when in reality we are not. That's what makes it so dangerous. I mean, there are multiplied millions of people all over the world who are convinced that what they believe and how they live is exactly right. But if their beliefs and their actions are contrary to the biblical gospel, then they are deceived. Jesus himself said he was the way, the truth, the life. No way to be right with the Father except from him. So according to the words of Jesus, that means every person who looks to some other way or some other truth claim, they're wrong. They're deceived. That's why it was a problem when Paul claimed before the Sanhedrin in his, one of his earlier defenses that he had lived with a perfectly good conscience before God and man. Because if Paul was right, then these men were deceived and they knew that's what he was telling them. They were wrong and they didn't like hearing that because they didn't think they were wrong. They were deceived like Paul had been. Well, at this point in his life, like I said, Paul was deceived. In doing what he considered his duty, he was willfully persisting in the greatest sin. But all that changed on his way to Damascus. So in our next point, we see that the risen Christ graciously intervened in Paul's spiritually darkened life and not only saved him, but also called him into the gospel ministry as an apostle. Paul explains this in verses 12 through 18. 
While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There's no indication at all that Paul had any guilt whatsoever for the things that he had been doing. None. There's no hint of him rethinking the direction of his life. Instead, he was on his way to Damascus with the approval of the chief priest to persecute the Christians there just like he had in such violent ways in Jerusalem. Well, as Paul made his way to Damascus full of that hostility toward the name of Jesus, he saw a light from heaven. He says it was midday. He points this out so that that would be the time when the sun was at its highest, at its brightest. But he says the light from heaven was brighter than the light of the sun. And he and those with him fell to the ground in fear and astonishment at what was happening. And then Paul heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. Goads were like were sharp sticks that they used to keep oxen in line. And if the oxen kicked against the goads, the driver would use the goads more severely. So Paul's hostile actions toward Jesus Christ, the Son of God, simply were not going to work. It's hard to kick against the goads. It's not going to work. You're not going to be successful here. Paul says, Who are you, Lord? says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The Lord had already changed Paul's heart so that he understood that this, that this one he was speaking to and who was speaking to him was the true Lord. And then Jesus made it clear who he was. And Paul knows now that he had been completely deceived. And the fact that Jesus appeared to him in light brighter than the sun speaks to the spiritual darkness of Paul's own life. Well, in persecuting the church, Paul was actively persecuting Jesus, who is the head of the church. The church is his body. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ himself. The Lord then called Paul to be his minister, to be his witness. Jesus promises to come to Paul and reveal truth to him that he's going to share with others. Paul's ministry is going to be to the Jewish people, but especially to the Gentiles. And the Lord promised to rescue him from their attempts to take his life so that he can continue to preach his word. And we've seen all kinds of examples of that through the book of Acts. And, it's, of course, it's happening even here as well. It's interesting how Jesus describes Paul's ministry. It's to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the dominion of God. That's exactly what the Lord did for Paul. He was completely deceived. 
he thought he was doing his duty for God when in fact he was persisting in great sin. That is what sin does, not just in Paul's life, but in all of us. If you're a Christian, you may very well have some times in your life where you felt like you were doing the right thing, believing the right thing. As you look back now, you realize you were wrong. But thank the Lord that he changes hearts, he opens eyes, he turns from darkness to light. He delivers from the dominion of Satan to serving the one true God. And Christ also, he tells us here, he grants full forgiveness of our sins. It's by the shedding of his blood that sinners, even those who have persecuted the church, can be forgiven. And Christ, he reminds us here that every believer has an eternal inheritance in the Lord. That's because we're his adopted children. So there's an inheritance for every child of God, an eternal inheritance that can't be lost. In Christ, every believer is sanctified by faith. Like Paul said earlier, we're all saints, people that are sanctified, people that are set apart from our sin, set apart for God as his special people. Well, that's the message. That was the hope of the promise that Paul was now to share as a believer. And that's what he was to share now as an apostle of Christ. So Paul testifies to Agrippa of what the Lord did in his life. He holds to the same hope of the promise as other Jews. But the Lord has made it clear to him that Jesus is, in fact, the promised one that they're all looking for. Paul has not ceased to be a Jew. Instead, he is being more consistent with the things the Jewish leaders believe than they are. Well, at this point, there's something of a transition in Paul's message. Paul begins to move toward the response needed for this gospel message. So in our second main point, we see this. With God's help, Paul was faithful to declare the hope of the promised Messiah to all and called for the response of true repentance and faith. So Paul was called to believe, but he was also called to proclaim. Look what he says in verses 19 to 23. He says, So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, He would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. In verse 19, Paul addresses Agrippa by name. It's like he's he's, he's calling his attention. I don't know if he was dozing off, but he he was calling his attention to make sure. It's almost like I want you to pay attention, you know, especially listen to what I'm saying here. He describes what he experienced as a heavenly vision. So this was a divine communication from the present and visible Redeemer, from Christ himself. Just an extraordinary thing. Of course, he was going to be obedient to what the risen Christ called him to do. So Paul began to immediately speak of the gospel in Damascus. A number of years later, he spoke of the gospel in Jerusalem. A number of years after that, he was able to move into the areas of Judea more broadly, and then ultimately to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. He preached Jesus as the promised Christ. 
He preached repentance. So he called on men and women and children to recognize their sin before the Lord, just like he did. He called on men, women, and children to turn from their sin, just like he did. He called on men, women, and children to turn to the Lord in faith, just like he did. He told them that if they truly repented and turned to the Lord, that would be evident in the way they lived their life. Well, it was because Paul preached Jesus as the promised Christ to both Jews and Gentiles that some Jews, he says, seized him in the temple in Jerusalem and tried to kill him. But, of course, God delivered him. He delivered him through the Roman commander. He delivered him through making their plan to ambush and kill him known. He delivered him through the Roman magistrates who kept him in prison so the Jews couldn't get at him. But God was the one who was with him, keeping him safe. Then Paul gave some detail in the message he preached. So the next point we see this. Paul's gospel proclamation of a suffering and resurrected Christ was consistent with all that the law and the prophets spoke of. Paul has done this multiple times in these defenses that he's done. He's making it clear that all that he has done, all that he has preached, is fully consistent with the Hebrew Scriptures. He's not changing anything. He says in verse 22, he stated nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Well, the Jews accused him of speaking against the law of Moses. Paul flatly denies this. It's not true. It was in the law and the prophets that it was clear that the Christ would suffer. The Jews did not believe the promised Messiah was going to suffer, but their own scriptures make it clear that he would. The animal sacrifices that took place by the hundreds and thousands every day at the temple all pointed to the fact that sin could only be paid for by a bloody sacrifice. It was the law of Moses that prescribed these sacrifices in detail, all pointing to Christ. I noticed on my calendar that today is the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement. Jews still recognize the Day of Atonement. I mean, a perfect description, Jeremiah has been explaining these things to us in the study in the Old Testament. There is a blood atonement for sin on the Day of Atonement that they observed then, they continue to observe now, not with sacrifices, but it's the same idea. All that points to the fact that the Messiah would suffer. It was the prophet Isaiah who described the Messiah as a suffering servant, he gave details about this suffering, especially in, in Isaiah 53. Here's some of the phrases. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One who was despised. One who was smitten of God and afflicted. One who was pierced through for our transgressions. One who was crushed for our iniquities. One who would be scourged. One who would be like a lamb led to slaughter. All those things were prophesied. And all of them were perfect descriptions of the sufferings that Jesus Christ endured. As we noted earlier, David prophesied clearly that the Messiah would be resurrected from the dead. Isaiah does as well, but David's uh, are the ones that were spoken of here. But that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. Yes, extreme suffering, but then he rose again from the dead. And it was this truth that caused Paul to say earlier, why is it considered incredible among you people that God would raise someone from the dead? I mean, this is biblical truth. Old Testament, 
as well as in the new. It is the crucified and resurrected Christ that proclaims light, truth, reality to both Jews and Gentiles. And that's the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. That was the hope of the promise made by God to the fathers. And every one of us who have, every one of us have been blinded by our sin and belief and all desperately need this because none of us would ever put our faith in Christ unless he opened our eyes to see these things like he opened Paul's eyes. So the message needed to be proclaimed and it needed to be responded to by those who heard it. Well, we have two responses here in Acts 26 that are both inadequate. First, it's Festus's response. And it helps us to see that faith in the biblical gospel seems foolish. Faith in the biblical gospel seems foolish to those whose minds are darkened by sin. So here's what Festus said in verses 24 and 25. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Now, part of what's going on here is that Festus is not familiar with the Hebrew scriptures like Agrippa is. Paul is freely referring to things from the law and the prophets that Festus would not understand. But, and Festus also refers to Paul's learning. It's clear Paul was a very educated man. He's probably especially referring here to Paul's understanding of the scriptures. Well, on top of that, Paul was not just, as Paul was making his defense, he wasn't just telling a story or teaching a lesson. Paul was passionate about these things. He was deeply convicted of his sin of unbelief and persecuting the saints. He was genuinely moved when thinking again about how Jesus, the promised Messiah, came to him and saved him. He had a real heart, both for Jews and Greeks, blinded by sin and unbelief like he was. So Festus is not only responding to the words spoken, but he's responding to Paul's passion for the Lord as well. He could not relate to that, those things in any way. Why was that? It's because his own heart was darkened by sin. He could not and would not see the truth of how wicked his life was. He could not and would not see that he was under the wrath of God as a sinful man. He could not and would not see that Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, was his only hope, just like it was for Paul. Paul tells Festus in verse 25 that what he's speaking is sober truth, but Festus would not see it. Apart from the grace of God, that's where we all are. We are all in need of that amazing grace that John Newton wrote about, about that saves wretches like us. Festus didn't see it. Well, then we see Paul move the attention back to Agrippa. So look at verses 26 to 32. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would wish to God 
that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we see at the end there, Agrippa agrees with what the others had said about Paul, that he had done nothing worthy of death or worthy of imprisonment. But he will stand before Caesar because that is what Paul asked for, and it's exactly what God ordained for him. This is probably something of a maybe slight rebuke toward Festus because Festus kind of pushed him into that with the way he was trying to get him to go to Jerusalem. But Agrippa can't give him any, any charges to send with him either because he says he's done nothing wrong. I don't know what you're going to tell him. <laughs> but I want, what I want you to look at, though, is Agrippa's personal response to Paul's words. Paul wisely, I mean, Festus, of course, has gotten his attention. He wisely and very just, he just does, it's amazing how he, how he switches everything back to Agrippa. He pays attention to Festus, but then he turns it right back to Agrippa. He says that Agrippa knows, he understands the things that I'm speaking of. He understands these matters. He was well aware of Jesus' death and resurrection because that information was well known to him since Jerusalem was part of his jurisdiction. And then Paul appeals to Agrippa's understanding of the scriptures. Look what he says there in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. In other words, you know what the prophets said is the word of God. You believe that just like I do, right? You believe in them. I know you do because I've seen evidence of that in your own actions, things that he knew of Agrippa. Paul is pressing the issue with Agrippa. He's actually pressing the issue with everyone in the room. He ends up telling them, he says, I want you all, everybody in the room to be like me except for these chains. I want you all to believe. So he's pressing, he's appealing. But Agrippa's response to Paul has become quite well known. He says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. The question here is this, and there's not a precise, good, clear answer to it. Was he being serious? Was he mocking Paul? Was he being sarcastic? We don't really know for sure what was behind all this. My opinion is this, is that he truly was moved by what Paul said, but he was trying to cover it up with these words. Uh, he most likely would not use the term Christian in a positive way. At this time, the word Christian was normally used as a smear, as a put-down. So what can we learn from Agrippa's response? Well, we see this. This is the next one on your outline. There is much danger in being content to be an almost Christian. It's a danger to be content to be an almost Christian. Agrippa was close. He knew the scriptures. He knew who Jesus Christ was. He knew something of the Christian faith. And he seems content to leave it there. Here are some comments from John Gill on the problem with being an almost Christian. An almost Christian is one 
that has much light and knowledge, but no grace. He may know something of himself and of sin. He may know much of Christ in a speculative way, but has no application of these things to himself. Knowing about the gospel message, knowing about the problem of sin, knowing about Jesus Christ, those are all good things. But if there's no application in life, then the person is lost. If there is no repentance and faith, we're still in our sins. Our Lord has provided Jesus as the promised hope, the Messiah that we all need. We must not be content just to know about that without applying it to our life. There is no hope in being an almost Christian. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony we have here of Paul and how you work through that man in just amazing, dramatic, life-changing, world-changing ways. I thank you for his example of, uh, he knows he's in the position he is because of other people's sin, but he also knows that you put him there, and he takes well advantage of the opportunity he has to speak well of you. Thank you for that example that we, that we have in him. Lord, grant us, some, grant us the boldness that we need to be able to speak when we have opportunities. Lord, I also, ask, I also thank you for the, for the way that he testified so clearly about Jesus Christ and about how he is, he is all that the law and the prophets said he, he would be. He's the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke of. Lord, help us to see and help us to fully embrace all of Christ. Most of us in here are probably Christians anyway. Lord, help us to, like I said, I really believe that Paul was speaking this in a passionate kind of way. Give us that kind of passion ourselves for what Christ has done in our life to change us. Lord, we also know that there are different ways to respond. I mean, some people just kind of, just kind of turn their back on it and say, no way. I'm not interested in that at all, just like Festus did. And then there's people like Agrippa who knew a lot. He had a lot of information, way more than Festus had. He understood a lot, but he was not willing to commit his life to Christ. And as best we know, we don't know if he ever did. But if he left it like that, then he still had to face the Lord when he, at his death as one who was condemned apart from Christ. Lord, help us to realize, again, the importance of Christ. And if there are those here who really would be more in the category of an almost Christian, I ask that you would incline their heart towards you. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. There's a lot I know about Christ, but I have not received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as my Lord. I know that's what he came to accomplish. He came to accomplish my salvation, and I want to receive him as my Savior and as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ.